Support for Gig with Mike Redman comes from Music Connection. For 45 years, connecting artists and musicians with each other and the industry. And you can find them on the web at musicconnection.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Gig, where we explore jobs in the film and music industry. I'm your host, Mike Redman, and today I'd like to introduce you to Jennifer Batten, a highly acclaimed guitarist known for her phenomenal playing and unique style. Jennifer's had an incredible career journey, mostly as a touring artist playing on all of the Michael Jackson tours and for several years with Jeff Beck, among many others. She's also released several solo albums and collaborated with a wide range of artists in various genres. Overall, Jennifer Batten is a true guitar virtuoso who has left an indelible mark in the music world with her exceptional talent, love of music, and love of her instrument. So Jennifer, it's so nice to see you today. Good to be here. Oh, great. I'm glad you could join us. Well, let's talk about Jeff. Yeah. He was also my hero growing up. I think just like, you know, having great chops isn't enough to make a career out of, right? I use uh, texting as my analogy. You know, it doesn't matter how fast you can text. It's what you actually have to say. <laughs> and in fact, the faster you text, the, the more uh, precarious it can be. So how did, how did, you, how did you guys meet? How did that come about? I tracked him down. I had been in several situations where he was just there. Yeah. And it was my bucket list to get an autograph. And I remember one show, I was at some booth and they go, did you see Jeff? He was here 10 minutes ago. And I'm like, oh, not again. Jesus. So when Michael Jackson announced the Dangerous Tour in 92, I thought, great. I know I'm going back to England and I know he lives there somewhere. The country that we went to... Um, after the show, there would be Sony reps hanging out, and I'd ask them, does anybody know Jeff or how to get a hold of him to get him to a show? And eventually somebody came through to get him tickets to the Wembley Stadium show. And two opening acts went on, uh-huh. and then Michael canceled. And so, you know, I, I was so looking forward to the show and thought that – he might be in the VIP tent. So as all these crying children and thousands of people are leaving and uh-huh. the band was placed on a bus and closed the curtain so nobody noticed them because it's dangerous and people are pissed off. Yeah. I wasn't going to leave. So I was walking across <laughs> this, you know, putting my life in danger and found that he had been turned away at the gate because he, he came last minute. And Oh, no. I called him the next day and said, yeah, I don't know when or if they're going to make up the show, but can I meet you anyway? And he said, yeah. So I came down to, I forget the name of the studio in London. He was doing his Rockabilly record, and I met him then. He was super nice. I heard some of the new music, which I found shocking because... Yeah, it was really, really different, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And he was imitating Cliff Gallup, so there was none of the traditional Beckisms there. and. You know, back long before the smartphone, I had one of those big honking video cameras and I asked him to play Blue Wind and he started playing it. And I had already memorized the whole Wired record, the whole blow by blow record. Oh, wow. Wow. And even though I was playing the same notes, he was doing it differently. And that's just like to see it live in person just opened up a whole new bag of tricks of understanding where the sound comes from. I mean, like a fraction of understanding. So, um, and I spent about an hour with him, which honestly was really awkward because although I knew his music so well, I didn't know him as a person. And it wasn't like social media where people are always doing podcasts and you can check out a hundred of anybody any day. 
And it, it was just, I remember I, there was a boutique, a record shop that sold bootlegs in San Diego that I used to go to and I befriended the guys and they would get British music magazines in. Oh, cool. So I'd go back and just go through and see if there was anything on Jeff. But face to face, it was like, ah, thankfully I had two things. So they, they really helped keep the conversation going. And I gave him, I got an autograph, which I, since he passed, I, I dug it up and put it in a frame. And oh, it, it that's not, yeah. said, I'm like, great to meet you, can't wait to hear you play. Well, fast forward, I, I had given him um, a copy of my first CD, and I had done a video for Flight of the Bumblebee where I was covered with bees. And uh-huh. Oh, cool. And he was that. And they gave me a copy of that with an interview, which the format you couldn't play in America. So I gave it to Jeff and the CD, thinking, okay. And then he called me um, I don't know, a month or two later and said, I finally listened to your record and let's record something together. Blew my mind. Just phenomenal. That blows my mind, too. I mean, that. <laughs> He's the kind of guy that's jump and a net will appear. You know, there was the spark his interest and he's going to dive in and just see what's there. It was there for three solid years. Honestly, when, when my era was over, um, the bass player and I were at his house. Beck was talking about the future and the bass player said something like, you know, we got nothing left. <laughs> you know, it, it was such an intense three years. I mean, just nonstop. And every waking moment that I wasn't actually playing with him, I was writing for him or doing something. I, I, you know, this was at the end of the tour, and most yeah. most people decide they're getting out of the business, or you know, <laughs> that was the last one. You know, sad to say, but it's it, better than getting fired. And I think it it stunned him a little bit, you know, because we had been going pretty strong for three years. But you know, he's never lasted more than two records with anybody yeah. because he, he's always looking for f- fresh, fresh meat, fresh yeah. material. You know, new sparks of inspiration. He doesn't ever want to go in the same direction for very long. Um, he ended up doing one more electronica record and then took a left turn and like a like a lot of us musicians in our and we won't call it ad add i call it uh <laughs> i call it uh what i used to tell my mom i said it's a overabundance of creativity following the muse you know i, I totally understand it and totally support it and and i went to see him every tour i probably saw him 20 times in the last 20 years and it it, it was always exciting because he was always doing something unexpected. Did I hear? Did I read somewhere that you did you do a course or something on Jeff Becklicks, or is that did I make that up? Yeah. Well, during COVID, you know, we can't work, so I, I had a, a a monthly online symposium. Oh, okay. So we did two weekends that were about guitar heroes, and I did two different things on Jeff. Can you tell me about? Was there a time when you guys were on stage, which was like this? You know, when it went through your head, and you went, holy shit, I'm sitting here with Jeff, my hero, and we're playing together, and he just played that thing, and I played this thing, and there's magic here. There, Well, many times, but there, there's, there's one gig in particular that really sticks out in my mind, <clears throat> and I know he, he was not in a good mood before the show for some reason, and it was, I think, in Sardinia, Italy, and uh, it was right by the sea. And I remember just hanging out, put my feet in the water during the day and playing at night, just beautiful summer night. And that night I thought, man, it, it doesn't get better than this. <laughs> and, and like playing, live playing, um, to me, I, I look at it like purging demons. 
That's what it's like. I mean, you're a different person after you do a show than you are before. And I think that that happened for him. Whatever was bugging him purged, and he played great that night. That's uh, interesting you say that. It just made me think of something. Yeah, we'll talk about Michael a little bit, too. But, you know, I'm sure that those are extreme. You know, those are note-for-note, note, you know, solos that are worked out and da 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 But I'm guessing that playing with Jeff was a lot more improv, wasn't it? Yeah, well, depending on what tour with with Michael, I, I generally got to do some improv, which was, you know, limited. But, oh, God, yeah, it was night and day, 180 degrees different. Because with Michael, there's costume changes and pyro and choreography and things that have to happen. One song has to follow the next. It has to be the same every night so everybody gets their cues right. But with, with Jeff, it's, it's about inspiration and improv. And he liked it to be different every night. So, you know, whatever we could think of to take stuff in, in, into a, a different zone would fire him up. Did, that, uh, did his playing, once you were in its presence and you were playing with him, did that kind of start to influence your own playing very much? Uh, well, I, his influence started many years before that, honestly. Um, I mean, I was into his music. I remember Blow by Blow being on the radio. Then I, I, I went to Musicians Institute, which at the time was just a guitar school. I went to the third class they had, graduated in 79. And one of the things we had to do was transcribe a, a tune and a solo and play it live with the band. And... I did some jazz thing, but Steve Lynch was in my class. Who He was in a band called Autograph that had a big hit in the 80s. And he did Because We Ended His Lovers. Oh, wow. And it was so powerful compared yeah. to all the jazz stuff we were doing. I'm going, man, I want that. And I think that's what triggered me to learn all the stuff on Blow by, by Blow and Wired. But playing on stage with him, uh, yeah, it was super inspiring. And I learned... So much from just hanging out on the long bus rides, listening to music and listening to his opinions about music or being in the studio for eight hours where you, you didn't need another guitar player on a Jeff Beck record, although he had me a few things. But just listening to his opinions was, you know, so rich. Yeah. And cars, just cars, cars, cars. <laughs> Lots about cars. <laughs> cars did pop up. If Jeff was sitting here in your place now, and I was interviewing him. I think he would probably say that you know that you were the true inspiration to him on stage, and and that he got you know the things that you were getting from him. He was getting all that same stuff from you. It's so it's so cool. Well, thank you. You know, it's it's really interesting. I've all these magazines. He's on the cover of everything around of course. And I just read an article that was only released in Japan in 1999 that was, well, it was an English journalist, so he, he took an edited version and put it in Guitar World. And it, it kind of blew my mind because it was, Jeff was talking about how he was so depressed after the Guitar Shop record because it didn't do better, mm -hmm. which I had no idea what the sales were. To me, it was huge. And I saw him do a double bill with Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, with that. And it's just such an iconic record. But I didn't know that I was walking into this years-long depression. And, you know, here I am. I couldn't be a bigger fan. I'm yeah. like the big cheer for anything. He says, yeah, let's do that. I'm so into that. You know, I would spend, it wasn't like I walked in and like, uh, when's, when's it done? I got to go somewhere. It's like, 
I'm here for you, whatever you want. And there, there was one incident where he came in and said, um, when we were about to do an American tour he, and we were in rehearsals, he, he came in with a list of reasons why not to do the David Letterman show. <laughs> <laughs> because it made him nervous. He's oh, going really? first, and second, and third, and like all these things. And the whole band was going, we want to do it. I wouldn't want to miss that opportunity, for God's sake. But with good reason, cameras made him nervous. You know, it's, it's like there's a magnifying glass on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that funny, though? I think the further, further those, uh, for, uh, for us musicians, I think the further you push that camera in, the more magic you see happening. You know, you, you, you're watching his hands. And I, I um, gosh, I just I, I spent years trying to play things like him. And probably the biggest compliment I ever received was a session when I finished and, and the uh, producer said, wow, Mike, that was awesome. It, it, it sounded like you were Jeff Beck. Mm. That, oddly enough, that was like the best compliment in the world to me uh, because it felt like that I was playing. And like I said earlier about texting, I was actually saying something that's worth hearing. Exactly. I mean, when you say Jeff Beck, I mean, this I guess somebody that's not in the know would think like you you have his guitar and playing his licks, but it's so much deeper than that. It means that it emotionally reached somebody. But he'll surely be missed, that's for sure. Let's move on. Let's move backwards. You said you were on tour with Michael Jackson. I I was kind of curious because you've talked an awful lot about it in interviews and stuff. And I won't uh, rehash the same things that you've you know told people over and over. But because I think there's more important stuff to talk about. But I read that there were a uh, hundred uh, people auditioning for that spot, and you got the gig. And I'm re- I'm kind of interested in how did you get the call, the initial call for that audition. And why do you think that you were selected out of all of those people? He had his right, right-hand man, Nelson Hayes, called Musicians Institute because they had a referral service. And he said, uh, you know, send us two people. And so I was one of the lucky ones that, that even got the call to go audition. And uh, I took... God, two or three days off. I, I said, when's the last possible time I could audition so I could just cancel it, stay home, work on the tunes, and walk in knowing I, I'm doing my best. And I walked in, and there was no band. It was just a video camera and me. Well, I, I hadn't done that many auditions. I, I don't know if I'd done any auditions, actually. And the only guidance I was given was to play some funky rhythm because, you know, that's 99% of the show is playing funky parts. And then I started just improving. Then I, I played the Giant Steps tapping solo that I had worked out for my first record. And then I finished with the Beat It solo because I had played that oh, in a cover cool. band uh-huh. since 80, whenever it came out. I thought he might find that useful. You know, I, I never talked to him about why he hired me, but I'll say, I don't know, 15, 20 years later, there was a guy, I don't think it's ever been released, but there was a guy doing a a documentary on female guitar players. Mm-hmm. And he contacted Nelson 
who, who shot the video and he still had it. So he sent the video over and I saw that video after all these years and it's just, it's kind of comical because I was trying to look so cool and I so wasn't. Yeah. I was just well. like, thank God they had costumers and hair and makeup people because I was clueless. There was parts of it that were pretty good. And and anyway, and along with the video, there, there was a, a list of names. And next to my name, Michael wrote two stars and said, great. Oh, with okay. Points. So he liked something. Plus, I mean, Beat It was obviously going to be played every tour because it was such a big hit. So it had to be somebody that knew those techniques. Wow, that that must be crazy. Because, I mean, I, the way my mind thinks, I can't, I have a really hard time playing the same thing twice. What was uh, like the some of the best and worst things about being on a tour that's that big when you're playing nothing but stadiums and sellouts and you know the whole tour is sold out before you ever get on a plane? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was mostly positive. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just so exciting. Um, you know, big tours like that when when you have band members that are just thrown together, you never know what personalities are going to get along or not get along. And thankfully, everybody was great. And well, we still stay in touch, those of us that are still alive. Um, as far as negative, uh, awareness of the jealousy. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah. And it, it wasn't just me. I remember having that conversation with the dancers. Like, all of a sudden, you know, we were at this level, and then, boom, biggest tour in the world, and the people that are left behind are, are super jealous. And Well, the positive side of that is there was no Facebook. <laughs> That's true. There's nobody bashing so, you on Twitter, right? Isn't that funny, though? I, I, you know, that's, uh, yeah, we live in that part, world right now. That's crazy. So when you traveled, um, uh, were you guys back then, were you skipping? I mean, uh, were, were they production skipping where they would, you know, be setting up the next tour or two in front of you on the way? I, I think so. You know, it was so compartmentalized. I wasn't really a part of that. But I will say, we only played two or three shows a week because it was such a big thing to put on. And Michael had reached a point in his career where he didn't have to play every night. We were yeah. so spoiled. We had plenty of time in every city to just hang out and take it in. Well, you know what? You're one of those people. It's it's uh, my father-in-law used to say, uh, you're a perfect example of if, of if you work hard enough, you're going to get lucky. Yeah. Uh, thinking about gear and stuff, um, do you, did you travel with your favorite guitars with you all the time? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Actually, you know, in the in the bad tour, I before that I had a I think I was playing a Fender Strat, and, and Ibanez was really starting to get big at that time. And I remember that the inside covers of Guitar Player magazines they would be launching players like Frank Cambali, Scott Henderson with these full color ads. And I thought, I want that. And I was working at um, in L.A., Valley Arts uh, Music Shop, teaching before I got that gig. And one of the guys that worked there left to work with Ibanez. And I thought, great, I got my Ibanez contact. And before I got the Jackson tour, I called him up and, you know, I wanted to get a guitar, get an endorsement and crickets. As soon as I got the Jackson gig, how many guitars do you want? (laughs) 
You had mentioned, uh, I was asking you about uh, things to talk about. You mentioned trackers. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I just think what's on my mind at the time. Man, for years, I would, I would go to Europe with the most ridiculously heavy luggage just to have what I needed and clothes for a month because I'd go for a month or six weeks at a time. And now, thank God, technology has finally caught up where I've got all of my gear, including an amp head. The guitar amp one, which is preamp and power amp in three pounds. You know, I've had so many experiences with people losing my luggage and show up with no costume, no guitar. And there's not a lot I can do about the guitar because now you can only take one carry on and that's all of my sounds. So all I need is a speaker and actually he also makes a thing called a blue box that's a speaker emulator. So if somebody screws up and doesn't provide a speaker, at least I know I can choose a, a Marshall speaker model to direct. Um, and, and then, you know, so many, so many times, I don't even know what country when I show up and my luggage isn't there. Um, yeah, and the airlines are a lot of times not helpful and even lie to get you out of the line. So now, <laughs> with the Apple tracker, it's really comforting that, you know, I'll land in Mexico City and go, ah, at least it's in the same country, you know? That's, no, that's really cool. So I, I put that in a, in a guitar case, and I also put it in a makeup case that's in my luggage. So, um, well, I will say the tracker's awesome, except the last two or three times I went to England, I landed with nothing. And so I'm really tracker, wow. and, and I see, okay, it's 14 miles away. My guitar is 14 miles away, three hours till the show. And then I see now it's 20 miles away. Now it's four. Oh, no, they're delivering it to the wrong place. Well, they're something. delivering to other people first. And that particular time, I got my, I got my guitar 30 minutes before the show. Um, if you were, if, if I was being asked to join a tour, and I've never really toured too much, what kind of questions should I ask, you know, uh, a manager, or somebody that calls me? What does it pay? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a good one. Uh, another big one is, uh, are you going to cover flights? Are you going to cover bag fees? Because the, the last flight I took, it was almost two hundred dollars in bag fees, and that's you know, you fly. A from city to city and that's going to really add up. I mean very basic things that you would assume like are you going to cover hotel, ground transportation and I, I've been surprised a few times where they don't cover stuff and I'm going seriously? You know, I've done a lot of email agreements or handshake agreements when I have a certain feeling about people and I've very rarely gotten burned but if it's going to be a, a good sized tour uh, you have to have some kind of contract. And having said that, I signed a contract with Michael Jackson on the, the Dangerous Tour, and there was some kind of fuckery that happened. The most likely management was on the take. I don't know, money got all kinds oh, of no. yeah. you know, On the first tour, I know yeah. he made a, like $100 million in profit. Second tour was nothing like that. He had different management and different accounts. Oh. And instead of management and accountants being at each other's throats, they were in cahoots. Yeah. There was something that happened where to get out of the contract that was signed, they changed the name of the company. 
we, not, we got a Seriously. company that's going to Europe now, so we're going to renegotiate. Yeah. Oh, you know, man. on that level, they, they got it like droves of lawyers that can weasel its way any which way. Have you ever broken a string in the middle of a, like an iconic solo that really screwed you up? Yeah. It was with Michael Jackson, and I remember Billy Sheen and Paul Gilbert were in the audience. And thankfully, it was at the end of a solo that it broke. And I had a Floyd Rose floating tremolo. And oh, break the string, that's what I've got. All the other yeah. strings are out of tune. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all I could really do was play harmonics and just put up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to tell me a secret. <laughs> I think of, of Jeff Beck when I was with him. He, he broke strings on, on the regular, and his tech was always looking at him. And always he would run out in a flash with a new guitar. Yeah. What kind of challenges did you have uh, uh, breaking in as a female? And and maybe, I mean, and maybe even, you know, what... What does it look like to you today? I mean, could you just want to talk about that a little bit and you know, advice or what? I don't know. I think all my younger years, it's a case of ignorance is bliss. I, I really wasn't aware. Uh, I, I started playing guitar when I was eight years old, and my dad was really into music. Jazz was always in the house. My sisters were got me into the Beatles and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and that kind of stuff. Um, so music was always a thing, and there were... You know, I'm trying to think of singers back in the day. I can't think of a single one. But when I would hear guitar solos on the radio, I would kind of, you know, air guitar in my head because it really resonated with me. And that's what I wanted to do. I thought it was really exciting. And it wasn't honestly until I went to the Guitar Institute and found that I was the only female in the whole school that I'd look around and go, I didn't know this was such a... An odd choice. I think, yeah. <laughs> so, um, after that, I'd, honestly, when you play with people, it's, it's going to be people that are open to having a female in the band. Uh, I do remember when I I, I played in a, I kind of cut my teeth on stage in San Diego with a, a band that, depending on the gig, we would do covers or we would do fusion covers. And at one point, we all decided to move to L.A. one at a time because the bass player who was from L.A., moved back and almost instantly got a gig with Johnny Rotten. And we thought, oh, cool. we got to be in L.A. to get famous. Ah, one after another. I went and lived in his garage for three months. It's going to be instant, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Comparatively, it was pretty quick for me. I moved up in 84 and got the Jackson gig in 87. So, Wow. That is, no, that's, that is pretty incredible. So, yeah, so you, you didn't, okay, so you didn't, um, come face to face with as much, you know, discrimination, I would say, as, as maybe a lot of females do. Not a ton. I, I will say that when I moved up, my dad gave me a loan to get started. And when that, that money went away really quickly. And oh, gosh, in that city, sure. It got to the, to the point where, okay, one more audition, and then I'm going to have to get a day job. And the audition was with a cover band, and I worked my ass off and did my best, and I even sang, which I, I don't do anymore. But at the end, the, the leader goes, yeah, that was great, but we always have trouble with chicks. And I go, well, <laughs> why did you waste my time? You know? And so 
I got a day job, or actually a night job. I was a night security at a some business building and trying to build students during the day. So, there, you know, I'm sure there was a lot more prejudice around me than I was aware of. I was just kind of single-minded. This is what I'm doing. From students, bands. By the time I got the Jackson gig, I was in five different bands that were playing in Hollywood. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, the fact that you're so effing good you know, <laughs> scared a lot of guys, and they didn't mess well, with you. <laughs> You're obviously a pretty good business person. I was going to say, are you a good business person? But the reason you're not. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because I said the reason I'm going to ask you is because most musicians just aren't. I'm very good when, when somebody says we have work for you. I'm mm -hmm. very, you know, really good at communicating and <clears throat> taking care of deadlines and contracts and that, that kind of stuff. But sure. as, as far as looking after money... No, I'm going to be seeing Rhonda Smith this weekend, and she's uh -huh. an expert at that sort of thing. But uh, uh -huh. yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like the, the rest of the slobs out there. But just it's very funny because I, I just a lot of what I geez, I've mentor a whole bunch of younger musicians, and we spend a lot of time talking about money. And I mean, the conversation almost always starts with, "I'd like you to have a job where you can have a family, you can take a vacation." You can afford to buy a car, you know, those kinds of things and, and, and not have to worry so much because most musicians and I have still have a bunch of friends that, you know, they have to play five gigs just to pay the rent. Sure. Five different types of gigs, you know, teaching and playing and everything. And, and it's and it becomes tough. And I, I, I hope to change that because there's a lot of people actually direct away from, you know, trying to become uh, rich and famous and just be in the business. You know what I mean? Be close to the music that you love. Well, and also the nature of the business is you don't have a steady paycheck. I do a little research, and you've done very well at diversifying your talent. You've got your own band. You've done your own recordings. You're doing touring. You are uh, selling some merch, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and and you have done, you're doing a lot. And then you do the other part that I think is right, which is, uh, you know, and, and sometimes it is a chore because even for me, I'm doing the podcast because I love talking to people and this is really fun for me. But then on the backside of it, I've got all of this social media I have to do, yeah, yeah. you know, because I'm not really doing this for the money. Uh, somebody asked me if I was, how, how am I going to make money with this? And I said, well, so far it just cost me money. I don't think I'll probably ever make any, right? But because of that, I don't have staff. Right. So you're in the same boat. It's like sure. pretty much what gets done, you have to do yourself. Yeah. But you've done a very good, I mean, from what I can tell, a very good job of it. <laughs> well, you know what I do? I have breakfast. During my coffee, I, I got a laptop and I... I answer emails and do all the business mm -hmm. stuff that I have to do until I'm so pissed off that I haven't moved. <laughs> <laughs> I, get up I take my dog out for a long walk and then begin the creative part of my day. So uh, a couple of the things before I let you go here really pretty quick. Did, have you always had a manager or agent that kind of helped you with your career? You know, I've, I've had, I think, three managers extremely short duration. I uh -huh. have a real problem with people 
speaking on my behalf. And mm -hmm. uh, one of them was I, I connected with him just before Jeff Beck called. And I said, man, I will do this gig for coffee. Do not charge him a lot. <laughs> this is not Michael Jackson audience, 50,000. It's maybe yeah. three to 5,000. So it's a huge mm -hmm. difference. And I found out he asked the exact same stuff, money that I got from Michael. And that was oh. the end of him. That could have lost me the gig easily. Just and when I found out, I just called Jeff and said, dude, I'll, I'll polish your boots. I'll work for coffee. Do not listen to that guy. It's like, whatever everybody else is getting, I'm cool. You know? <laughs> I'm glad you got to hear. I mean, I'm glad you got uh, that you actually found out and had a chance to do that. Yeah, it was. That was a treacherous thing. And it's, I had a, another brief uh, run-in with a manager that... <clears throat> Uh, here's the first red flag. I, I met him. Okay. I met him for dinner, and his credit uh -huh. card didn't work. Oh, <laughs> uh, you are a good business person. I mean, when I was just listen to you speak, you know, you don't think of yourself that way. But mm. well, here's the last one. Then it's one question. I ask everybody the same question. One sentence. It could be a run-on sentence if you like. But if I was listening to this and I said, I want to do what Jennifer has done. I want to end up touring and, you know, following sort of in her footsteps. What advice might you give me? Well, I think number one is to look after your love life. And I mean, your love life as you and your instrument, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that's for life. And, you know, you can have girlfriends, boyfriends, along the way. Um, mm -hmm. I will say that if, if you decide to have a family, I mean, God bless you, but that, that and a creative life is a really tough road. Uh, I could not have done the things I've done if I had a kid. There's no way in mm -hmm. hell, because it's been feast and famine and during the famine, you know, I, I, I've had times where I worry about feeding my dogs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, some people can make it work, on the, on the higher end, but you know the relationship with you and your instrument and music is is something that will s sustain you emotionally. And like I say, playing live and and even just playing at home is like purging demons. <laughs> you know, the world could get pretty goddamn dark, and I, I can go to the studio and come out two hours like I feel pretty good. Jennifer, thank you. Um, I hope to get to talk to you again. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Theme music for Gig with Mike Redmond was composed and produced by Other Animal. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of Gig with Mike Redmond. If you like what you heard, I'd ask that you subscribe and like us. And finally, if you have questions about a job or ideas for an episode, contact me at gigwithmikeredmond at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Redmond, signing off.